Creating your own reality. Is it possible for me? I am Jennifer K. Hill, the Consciousness Architect, and I am here to tell you that it's not only possible, it's closer than you might think. Welcome to the show. Hello, friends, and welcome to a wonderful way to start the new year with a dear friend of mine who is an incredible thought leader, a prior Marine, and one of the brilliant minds behind creating resilient villages and coherent communities. James Miles originally began his career in designing systems and business and served in the U.S. Marine Corps and has now been spending the last several decades of his life on focusing on bringing coherence not just to businesses, but to also communities. James, you are a friend. It is a pleasure to have you here today and uh, get to share about how can we create conscious communities going into this new year. Hello, Jennifer. Glad to be here. Always exciting to be with you. <laughs> now, in case you didn't just notice it, this man has a voice that was made for radio and podcast. I keep trying to encourage him ever since we first met. I said, James, can I just sit here and listen to you talk all day? <laughs> You have to figure it out, Jen. Let's just make it happen. We'll get out there and, and get, get a discussion going with a bunch of folks. It'll be fun. Awesome, my friend. Give a little context. I know you have quite the varied and eclectic background from serving ministry to business to the Marine Corps and now to working very closely with HeartMath. We both love and adore, and that's how we met. So perhaps take us through a little bit of your journey that led you to building conscious communities, James. Yeah, yeah, there's a couple really uh, quick touch points. Uh, one was that uh, growing up in Chicago, my dad was one of the first uh, African-Americans to be promoted to a district commander in the police force. Now, why is that significant? Um, so living in what would be a, a considered a black community, it was in transition, a black community. It was interesting that community where my great-grandmother was like, one block away from the police station, we were down another way. I went to school just up the street. So all this community and love and family, but at the same community, community members threatened to bomb our house. And I had recess time. I was being chased around and all that. So this, these complexity of the community. And then we, when my father retired, we moved to Puerto Rico. And so now it was not just this love and complexity, it was like these cultures and different ways of view, different languaging, and even some of the political and, and um, policy stuff coming in as a kid in the midst of this beautiful island, just waterfront and learning how to um, fish and swim and boats. Again, community became this really diverse place. From there, I went to school in uh, Missouri, Boonville, Missouri, at that military school. And so now community took on a whole nother set of vari variations and people getting really exposed to more of this rural environment with an international student body. Mm -hmm. I bought a boarding school with the military kind of overlay. And then some of the, again, some of those complexions. I already grew up with some of the difficulties of race and class and issue, but then you put that in with the power dynamic. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so those things shape the fact that community is this robust um, thing. Unlike some of my um, friends 
who may have grown up more in one community with one group of kids in one way, um, I was someplace else. So that really got me started. And then later on, as a Marine, I'm working the Joint Chiefs of Staff was one of my assignments and just got exposed to another way of looking at the world and, and getting a glimpse at what world leadership can look like with how decisions are made. And so again, what impacts community? But then the, the final two reference points was one was the fact that I, I also shifted when I got out of the Marine Corps and started studying theology. And I don't like go figure. You get all this stuff, all this computer engineer doing these things. No, I'm a study theology. And my mentor, who was Dr. Kane Felder, and this ideal of how sacred texts and the interpretation of texts have been weaponized. Mm. And what that looks like. And so we were traveling in and out of Egypt and in Israel. I had a, the privilege of going to South Africa a little a bit after Nelson Mandela became president, just other, and so you deal with these other questions about community and what it looks like. And the final uh, piece was that I got a chance to work with uh, Dr. Terry Mason when he was the chief medical officer for Cook County, Illinois, and with him designing this model called the Center for Total Health that was designed to empower people to become the agent in their own health journey after they'd been diagnosed with, with a chronic um, disease. And then helping them reduce the dependency on pharmaceuticals using lifestyle change. So again, it's like this idea of the individual being central to creating healthy community. So all these things have shaped what has become Resilient Village. This ideal of a place where we can come together and explore coherence as a catalyst for creating positive transformation in community that serves us all. I think it's so beautiful, James, that you've taken this holistic approach of community. And it's funny how we were talking about before we began the show today, our experiences color our world and we don't even realize it. And so if I've only grown up in a small town per se, and I've never seen anything outside my community, then I have a very narrow view of what community looks like. And yet as we're becoming a global community, as we've seen globalization happen over the last several decades with the advent of the smartphone and various technologies such as the internet, I think that our opportunity to become more conscious and conscientious about what community looks and feels like, not just for us, but from the lens of so many different people. As I just returned from uh, being three weeks in Asia, a week of which I was in remote India, with 100,000, over 100,000 people. And everybody has a different way that they see, a different way that you show respect to one another, a different way that you listen to other people. And I think without structure and infrastructure, which you're talking about, James, with your resilient villages and what you're creating, I think that it's like a house of cards and it's destined to fall. So tell us a little bit about that. How can we begin Say somebody is listening right now, and maybe they haven't traveled outside of their little network or their community. How can we begin to cultivate consciousness in our own community and thus have consciousness for other communities? Yeah, I love I love that framing, Jennifer. So inside Resilient Village are what I'll call our model of transformation, 
our theory of change, but this is the way we go about what we do. We call it doing good daily. And doing good daily is something that's within all of our reach. So it can start out with at the foundation, imagine this pyramid of growth. At the, at the base of it, it's just the foundation. Am I willing and practicing being aware of who I am and who others are? What they share, what they ex explore, what they're offering, how we communicate them, just being aware of that in these foundations. And what's in that awareness, what's really working and what's not. When do I notice myself being more open and expansive and feeling love? When do I notice myself operating out of fear and control and retracting? It's that awareness is the start. And when we can be aware of that, we can under, we can get in touch with what I call our foundational truths, mm -hmm. a sense of, of belonging and understanding. Why did I say that or do that? Why do I feel this way? And is that something that needs a little upgrade or not? Or something we got to get a tool or grow. And so the, in, the, in those foundational truths, then we build on that. We learn how to use that. And we find that it actually starts to feed our sense of survival. And for us, survival is not a bad thing. Survival is those basic practices that sustain our life. Now, when I'm desperate in survival, of course, it gets a little tough. If I don't have something to eat or if I don't have a place to stay or I'm constantly threatened, abused, violated. But the idea of understanding those foundational truths and those survival, then we build on that. At the next level, then, we start moving to what we call thriving. And at the thriving level, it's this understanding of, okay, what is it that I really, what's in my heart? What's the basics that I feel like I want to, or I'd like to explore or want to do it. How do I go about doing that? So if you're looking at it as a stream of consciousness, at this point now, I'm moving into this sense of an elevated sense of consciousness and thinking about it as a systems approach. It's like looking at that edge of chaos, mm -hmm. not on the far side of where things are just rigid and formed and no change. And this is it. To the other extreme where it's like totally unpredictable and oh my gosh what the heck's gonna happen next but at the edge of chaos is just enough structure to give some sense of uh footing grounding but there's enough possibility where we can affect change and so at that thriving level then we can bring our consciousness really to say okay this is what's in my heart how can i explore it and then as community where we have the sense of a collective consciousness. Mm. How do we understand enough about the different flows and streams in that sense of our collective consciousness and move into those spaces where there's possibilities? Mm. And in those possibilities, then we can decide, do I want to just be a catalyst for innovation and change and growth? Or do I need to bring a little bit of constructive disruption so that we can then birth possibilities but that's at that thriving i can't thrive unless and sustain it unless i really have some sense of those foundational truths mm. otherwise i'm building like you said sand just building on sand and the right set of circumstances that all that building can go away and then at the top of it then is this understanding now that i'm really moving from survival into thriving 
then I can start thinking about what do I really want to manifest? Mm. And what are some of those extensions of my soul and spirit that I, with others, are willing to just really apply ourselves to, and now we can create new realities that can then in turn reinforce or even create another set of foundational truths. Mm. So that's our model and how we move through it and how we work with both our clients and our friends. James, could you elaborate and perhaps share a story? I, I was recently taught this in a storytelling class where they said, listen, we can share information and hopefully some of us will remember these beautiful nuggets like foundational truths and surviving versus thriving. Whereas we've often discovered and the science has shown us, we're much more likely to remember stories than we are to remember, say, facts. Are there any stories that you might be able to share that would encapsulate how this has been made alive or real in the world? Yeah, I'll show you one that had a, an unintended consequence, but I can share one that had a really intended one. An unintended consequence yeah, first. Uh, had a, 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 an organizational client that was community facing. We love working with leaders and teams who are community facing, more than corporate, church, municipal, but that's a sweet spot for us. So we work with this organization that really was a housing agency, had a rich history in their market. And so I'm going in and I'm doing this work with them and really moving through the basic training. We're using the HeartMath Toolkit, as you mentioned. So we're teaching this idea of physiological coherence and, and self-regulation and how you can bring that in as a team to really better perform and create the change you want in the community. One of the young ladies in the group who was engaging during the training sessions, relatively quiet, but her energy looked good and she seemed to be positive. So all of a sudden I said, where is so-and-so? As we were moving into some of the implementation, because one of the things that we believe is you can't just have a mental um, awareness and knowledge. It has to really be drilled down through practice and implementation and exploration. So we build that in. So as we're talking about going from what does it mean to regulate myself and to create a coherent container for us to be able to be more innovative, and we're actually putting them into a laboratory setting to do that, I noticed this young lady's not there. And so then the executive who was our champion for this project was saying, oh, she's she." resigned. I said, oh. She said, yeah, and it's your fault. I said, oh. <laughs> she said it with a smile, fortunately. I said, my fault. I said, hey, I'll take it. Tell me why this is my fault. And it turns out that as we were going through the training, and part of it, again, those foundational truths, one of her foundational truths that she came to be able to face and embrace was that she was in an unhealthy an abusive relationship. Oh, wow. And so the training gave her language and tools to constructively own where she was versus kind of the gaslighting, confusing space that could often be in a situation like that. And so part of her strategy was to move back closer to supportive family out of this relationship and thus out of the marketplace. Mm. So it, it, it comes back to why the executive said it's your fault, but everybody understood and won. Kudos to her for 
taking the information and though it was not the direction that we were going, but she used it in a way there's that's empowerment and that growth. And so she took her foundational truths, had to shuffle them a little bit. And then the ideal, she knew that was not an environment where she could thrive, let alone create a new possibility and she needed to regroup. So it explains why she was, I could see that kind of interesting engaging of the sessions because she was going through that process. And that was over, I think it was like over a five month window, four or five months window. Oh, so that was one that had an unintended consequence. And a so, positive one at that. What an amazing consequence that somebody had the courage to leave their partner. That's unprecedented. I think this ideal, and that's another area where we can see of leaving room for collective consciousness that's evolving. Mm. This idea that I'm supposed to stay in a situation no matter what may have, can be understood from times past, social, cultural norms and practices. But in today's time, no, that's, that can't be your best advice. Well, it can't be what's preferred for you. Funny story, if you don't mind, if I interject here for a moment, James, that came to me. Do you know who Michael Beckwith is? Yeah. I love be him too. Oh, my God. Michael is adorable. you got to go visit him in L.A. He is fantastic. He is. I had the privilege and honor of actually Michael's, Michael Beckwith is a brilliant spiritual thought leader out of Los Angeles who has a spiritual non-denominational spiritual center called Agape. And much to your point, James, of like culturally, and community-wise, we have stories that maybe we're told from a religious standpoint or from within our own communities that you are bad or wrong if you get a divorce or bad or wrong if you leave a partner. And so I remember it must have been 20, it was 2018, and Michael had just gotten divorced from Ricky, who is his partner at Agape for 40 years and wife. And I was considering going through a divorce in September of 2018. And so I show up to Agape one day, and I think it was right before service, and I bump into Michael, and I said, Michael, I really respect and admire you, and I am really struggling from like a shame and guilt standpoint from culture and community saying that it's bad and wrong to get a divorce, and yet I really respect that you left your wife and you seem happy. Can can you give me any words of wisdom to help me get clarity on if I should get a divorce or not? And I will always remember the story, James, he said... Jennifer, he gives a little chuckle. If you ever get to meet Michael, he just has a very spirit, fun, like a uh, spirited energy. And he gives a little chuckle and says, Jennifer, it's only in Western culture that we put so much emphasis on monogamy and being with one person for our whole lives. And often it's materialistically linked. He said, if you go to certain parts of the world, like for example, Africa and certain villages, he said, you go before the village elders and you sign a seven-year contract. And for those seven years, you're married to your partner. At the end of those seven years, then you come back before the village elders and you and the elders and your partner discuss the lessons you learned. And if you have more lessons to learn, if everybody agrees, the elders and yourselves, then you sign another seven-year contract. However, if the elders and you and your partner agree that there are no more lessons to be learned, then the contract is severed and there is no more need for the marriage in that case. And I just love that story because in Western culture here, I was overburdened with shame and guilt of you don't ever get divorced. It's bad. 
And Michael told me this one story. And honestly, James, that was the catalyst that gave me permission to leave my ex-husband. Yeah. I tell you, Jennifer, there's one of my uh, professors, mentors, although I probably was not his best student at all. But he made the statement when they, Dr. John Kennedy, he made the statement that if you're dating and all the stuff you brought to your dating and now you get married, don't all of a sudden more to slap the Bible and all these rules on the relationship that weren't there when you were dating. Mm. And it wasn't advocated for just anything goes, but it was so practical. It's so, that was so practical. And this notion of understanding the flows and what got you here, those foundational truths. And then if you need to evolve the relationship, evolve it together. But don't all of a sudden now, I'm going to be whatever it is that, that got us here. And now all of a sudden, I want to be the paradigm of cultural purity, whatever that means to you, which generally is not pure at all. But this idea of being more grounded and aware of what's really driving that engine and then learning how to maintain it is so important and thus why we created our own a model of transformation to give people room because you're right how much energy do we waste in shame guilt and fear that's all of it if you look at david hawkins levels of consciousness at some of the lowest levels that we can attain shame guilt fear abandonment. It's all of these energies. And if we can move to a high enough level consciousness, either individually or as a community or collective, move beyond fear and guilt and shame to perhaps one of courage or one day to strive for love or peace, then that would be a world worth living in. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And at least, so you asked about another example Yeah. in this thing, and it builds on what we're saying. So I was working with this team and one of the things that as we were going, because initially it's just, a, it's where are you? Yeah. And then we use some standard temperament test, but we use it in a way where they integrate. So the person gets, gets a chance to engage some introspection and a little interoception. Mm-hmm. We don't want to just have this introspection where I'm, it could just be warmed over biscuits. I, and I had one leader, for example, say to me, Oh, I've already taken these. I already know this. I already got this. And a year later, he's, oh my gosh, this is the best thing. I got to do it. What was the difference? All of a sudden he realized that it wasn't just this historic view of who you perceived yourself to be. We're now also layering in, how does that feel in your body? Mm. How does that feel in your relationships? No. And he was the leader of an organization that I, I think was like 20 years old or so, I had to, but it had been around for a bit. And he was also teaching the next generation a craft. So he had all these dynamics going on and he was frustrated with his team, feeling like there wasn't anybody to take his place. He's ready to retire. Well, within a year period of time, and there were workshops at the beginning, then there was just a period of just go and do it. Then I, came back to work with the cohort. He was part of this consortium. That cohort for the next year, that's why I had a year's space with him. And what it was that now he was starting to see that, oh, the truth was, it's me. As the senior leader and founder of this organization, he was realizing that his frustration with the leadership team was him. 
Wow. And the way that he was going about it. So while he was doing these temperament tests, he now was looking at it in light of that everything, quote unquote, he had created in this organizational structure was a reflection of him. And the people then were feeding off of what he was putting out there, including uh, his disappointments. So it was repeating itself. And through that, while he still had challenges to you know, work out, the idea now is that uh, he now brought another leader to the table that the second round inside this consortium, now they could work together and move towards what they're trying to create, including the succession plan that was healthy, whole, and had a better chance of that organization or the legacy of it thriving beyond him and creating things that even he couldn't imagine. So that was another example where we were walking through and the basic steps, again, is those foundational truths. And then we bring in interoception through things like coherence and self-regulation. So imagine from the HeartMath Toolkit, we would use the inner balance device that a person can see, the biofeedback. How well are my practices of self-regulation showing up? Let me get better at it. So that's some, that's the beginning of that interoception along with that introspection. I'm, I'm examining myself and I'm learning how my body shows up. And then we start working with the team. How can you implement this in your meetings? And how do you want to review your programming and your training practices? So they start reflecting this new approach and we look at that and test it and they move forward. And so that's an example of us really bringing it to bear where the rubber meets the road. Hmm. Yes, it's it's so fascinating to think about it, where it's not just in this one-off situation where you're sharing that this gentleman had an aha moment. I've seen it myself when I ran a recruiting company for about a decade, and it was mind-blowing, James. A hundred out of a hundred times, whoever was running the organization dictated how the culture of that organization wound up. If you had a CEO or managing partner at the top, who is kind and compassionate and considerate, it had a trickle-down effect. People loved working there, and it came into who that person chose to hire as their managers, as the leaders within the organization, and vice versa. If you had somebody who was maybe more demanding or a little bit more tough with the team, then often you saw that in how the retention rates looked and everything else. So it's really indicative at the family level, at the business level, at the friendship level, whoever is the head of whatever that community is, dictates the culture or lack thereof of that community. Absolutely. And those of us who design systems or work with people that do, it's this interesting and wonderful opportunity to accept the cautionary tale of building into the system the same rat race, doggy dog, zero sum mindset, even if you, even if it's cloaked in the most beautiful cloth and wonderful scent, still the same thing. And so we even talked about how, how do you manage elevation and encouragement and growth? Is it the fact that you're setting the stage where for me to grow, I have to take this person down mm. or get better than them? And it's a delicate balance between encouraging growth and acknowledging progress that may not be universal and 
setting the stage where the very nature of it is that all of a sudden, uh, particularly when that leader who may be a nice person overall is not there and everybody else fights to get that one role, mm. you know, versus understanding what it means that we're trying to elevate the entire model or our service or our program, and even maybe create space for evolving new expressions of it that can create new opportunities for leadership versus only having this one role that everybody's fighting for. And it really, it creates really great discussions when we're in workshop and we're in our discovery sessions where we give, we create this space that very gently now that allows for a while, are we really collaborating? Is this some type of co-op petition or is this, was this a space where we're, if I should say, and, or are we creating space that's not honoring the uniqueness of individuals within the collective? And so therefore they're fighting to express who they are while sharing all these dynamics come up, but it's a part of their discovery in the resilient village approach. We don't just tell you, uh, that this is it. We discover with you and then sit with you and walk with you in applying the tools as you discover your path through, both as a leader than as a team. Beautiful, James. If you have somebody out there who maybe is listening and maybe they're the head of an organization, the head of a family, the head of their own community, what would be your last piece of advice for them of how they can bring consciousness into their communities? You know something, Jenna, just like you said with the organizational leader, it comes back to me. Mm. And so when I come up with doing good daily, so long as I am authentically, meaning in my most sincere self, practicing getting coherent, which could be as simple as slowing down my breathing, having a focus from my heart, and then bringing in uplifting emotions and thoughts. If I'm practicing that, this ideal of moving that forward is self-regulating and I'm disrupting the pattern of fear, anger, frustration, reactionary tendencies into this more calm, grounded, situationally aware person from the heart space, then I actually am opening up space to make change in my family, my friends, my work, every place. And just starting from there, and then as I grow and mature in that practice, I've started to do good daily to where now I can add it to what are my desires for the day? What do I really intend for today? Let me practice this self-regulation. And so I can raise my ability to, to be more grounded and cold while I'm minimizing reactionary tendencies. And then I have a better chance to actually see my heart's desire become manifest right before me in ways that would even surprise me. Mm -hmm. That is the starting point that guaranteed a person just practicing that type of consciousness on a regular basis will start getting feedback from their loved ones and friends like, wow, what's, that's different. What, what you doing? What, what's different with you? And you know, I want some of this. I know. What's that special sauce you've been having? Right. What did you have over Christmas dinner or New Year's? It seems like something different is happening. The, the movie is, I know it's dated now, when Harry met Sally and oh. they went singing. And the lady says, I want some of what she had. 
<laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's this thing that could be so just amazing because all of a sudden the, the, the experiences, the words, the elements of collective consciousness that can hijack your happiness start losing their effect. And now that energy that was used to get hijacked is now available for you to use and it's up to you to decide how you're going to use it. Will you create more positive transformation or will you just let it be? But you have choice now that wasn't there before. And that choice or that edge of chaos is where we can create the change we want. Mm. Yes. And to piggyback on that, I believe it was one of our other guests, John Robinson, who shared with me recently, even pausing, whether it's as James said, to use heart math or whatever breathing technique you like to get your body in a physiological state of coherence, or another technique John taught me recently is to think about the person you're about to meet with, whether you're about to send an email to them or do a meeting and write down one or two things you're grateful for. So before I get on a call with James, just to think of his affable nature and his brilliant smile and thoughtful way that he is, and just write a couple of those things down. And if we begin to bring consciousness, not just to one thing, but to everything, then by virtue of doing so, our communities too become conscious. Yeah. And you know what, Jennifer, I'll say this last comment. I, I joke around and... Sometimes it's not a joke, but just remind each other when I'm working with clients and friends, 10 seconds. So we call it a sandwich a day. Mm -hmm. The resonant breathing pattern that promotes more coherence between the heart and brain is five seconds in, five seconds out. So if I'm breathing at a pace that's five seconds in, five seconds out, I'm slowing down. But keep in mind, my awareness is actually optimized. And I'm slowing that breathing down. And then I can just picture, Jennifer, to your point, I was excited about being on this call with you because I always love connecting with you. And just your smile, your energy, and even in situations that, let's just say, are not optimal, mm -hmm. you are always like swimming towards the optimism. Thanks. I was like, yes, I love that. So this idea like, okay, it makes me want to bring my fuller self. And so just that feeling with the slower breathing, just imagine 10 seconds is enough to just start breaking a reaction pattern. That's what it is, James. It's a reaction it's pattern. It's self-regulation. If every one of us could learn this 10 seconds of breathing in a day, it's not like you have to sit down at the top of a mountain and meditate and find enlightenment. James exactly is asking right. for something we can all do while we're making breakfast, walking the dog, preparing the kids for school. It's something that is attainable and it just takes it becoming a habit in order for us to first begin our most coherent and conscientious and conscious community with ourselves. Can I share a funny situation? Yeah, please. So I was invited to a New Year's Eve celebration and I'm not really always keen on going to, but I went, I went, I let my, I put my introvert self to said, okay, calm down. We're going to go. And so I, I was there and one of my clients was there. And so of course this was a celebration. So we weren't talking business, but the CEO of an organization, he came up and said, his wife, one came up and had tears her eyes and said, thank you. Thank you for just what you're bringing to his life. I was like, wow. 
You're welcome. I love it. We're doing it together, actually. Thank you. And then he said, so he was going into a board meeting. And he has a, he's having bits of activism on his board. And so that can be a little tense sometimes. He's going to a board meeting. He said, okay. And he said, he started, said, let's just pause for a minute. We're just going to get coherent. And then get him to go. He never would have done it before. And so he put a pause in, didn't go through a lot of explanation, which was the way we say, don't, if people haven't been taught, don't try to teach in that moment. But if you create the pause and you do it, just for, even if you just do it, let's just say three rounds, 30 seconds, which can, be, can seem eternity for someone who's anxious, it shifts the space. And he says, sure enough, that was one of their better board meetings. I was like, go ahead, man. That's what I'm talking about. And so it gets simple. And he just did it himself. He says, some of them looked at him sideways, but who doesn't understand a moment of silence? Mm-hmm. But they may not have understood the mechanisms of coherence, but he did. And he was putting it to use. And just imagine that, whether you're at the boardroom or in your living room. Just a few seconds. Yeah, there, there is an opportunity. One of my other friends, Sister Jenna, who is part of the Braha Kumaris, she said she has an alarm on her phone and it's part of the Braha Kumaris where at the top of every hour, an alarm goes off for just one minute, one to three minutes of silence. No phone, no anything breathing. So if you want, as we're coming into this beautiful new year, new opportunity to create new habits and new ways to bring consciousness into our lives and the lives of those we love and work with, This is one of many things you can do, what James is sharing today. And James, I'm sure you've left our listeners and viewers wanting to learn more. Where can they follow up with you if they'd like to learn more, follow up with you after today? Sure. Uh, ResilientVillies.net is our website. Now, being merciful, we're still developing it. But ResilientVillies.net, you can reach us there. And then we have a toll-free number, uh, plus one, 833-673-4466. So resilientvillies.net and then plus one, eight, three, three, six, seven, three, four, four, six, six, and say, you heard about me here. And so I will know to just reach out and look forward to uh, connecting with you. Thank you so much, James. And thank you to each of you for tuning in wherever and whenever you listen to us. May you be able to take this wisdom that James so graciously and gratefully shared with us today about building conscious communities, and may we all go out there so that we become one huge global conscious community that uplifts and supports one another with living our truth. Thank you so much, James, for being here with us. Thanks for having me, Jennifer, anytime.